Amen. Thanks for coming here this morning. I just wanted to highlight these amazing Advent devotionals that Pastor Daniel has written and we've gone through the last three weeks. Um, it's not too late to jump in. So it's not in succession. We focus on a gift of Advent every single week and this week is love. So I would encourage you on your way out today to grab one um, in the tables in the back and just follow along. Um, <clears throat> there's five days and it's just... A brief scripture and then a reflection to kind of help prepare our hearts to make him room, if you will. So um, I wanted to jump in this morning with a little prayer and then we will get started. So Jesus, would you just come? Amen. That's it. Um, have you guys ever jumped into a series of a TV show or like a movie series like halfway through and you kind of understand it, but it's not as cool as everyone else around you? Like if you jumped in and watched Endgame without watching all the Thor and Spider-Man and Captain America, like all of those, it's so epic because everyone comes together. But if you don't know the backstories of all these characters, you can't fully appreciate what's happening in Endgame um, for those of you Avenger fans. So I, when are they gonna stop making movies? I mean, I feel like we're on 47 right now. I just give up, I feel, I just give up. So Doctor Strange was just trash. In my opinion, the, the latest Doctor Strange was trash. So I gave up on Marvel after that. That's waste of time. So anyway, but I feel like that's how we approach Christmas sometimes is we see this manger and we come into it and we hear about baby Jesus. And then you think about um, like Will Ferrell talking, praying to sweet baby Jesus and it just, it digresses, you know, just, I'm going to stop right there. But basically, like, we don't fully understand the weight of what's happening. It's like we come into the pinnacle of the story where it's breathtaking, it's amazing. I mean, all these wondrous events happen, but the buildup to this manger is absolutely incredible. And so that's today what I want to focus on is giving some context to the manger and why it's so significant that we pause our hearts, that we wait, and what it really means to be in this season of a thrill of hope. Um, and so one way we can do that, there's a, one of my favorite movies out there, um, which is the Chronicles of Narnia. I feel like it's also kind of a Christmas movie. I mean, it's happening sort of during Christmas. Um, and what happens is these four kids come into this magical land, but they have no idea what's been taking place the last few hundred years. And I feel like that's where we find ourselves with the manger as well. So let's take a look at this quick video. Isn't there anything we can do to help Tumnus? They're taking him to the witch's house. And you know what they say, there's few that go through them gates that come out again. Fish and chips. <laughs> but there is hope, dear. Lots of hope. Oh, yeah, there's a right bit more than hope. Aslan is on the move. Who's Aslan? <laughs> Who's Aslan? <laughs> you cheeky little blighter. <laughs> What? You don't know, do you? Well, 
You haven't exactly been here very long. Well, he's only the king of the whole wood. The top geezer. The real king of Narnia. He's been away for a long while. But he's just got back. And he's waiting for you near the stone table. He's waiting for us. You're blooming joking. They don't even know about the prophecy. Oh, it's so good. It's such a great movie. I need to just go back and rewatch it. It's just wonderful. Um, but anyways, that's where we find ourselves sometimes with this manger is what's happening? Why is this significant? What's going on? And so I want to recap a little bit of the book of Isaiah, where we're going to find ourselves today, specifically chapters 40 through 55. And Pastor Rob, our main geezer here at Denver United, so wonderfully <laughs> instructed us last week about how God had not forgotten the Israelites, even in the midst of their darkest time, he was still there, ready and waiting to bring comfort and speaking comfort to his people. But why did they need comfort to begin with? And what we see from the beginning of time, from the book of Genesis, is we see this perfect union between God and his creation. And that was separated, it was broken by sin. And over and over again, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see that God shows up for people. He makes a way for us to be in communication with him, in relationship with him. And then our sin goes in and messes it up time and time and time again. And so here we are in Isaiah, which was written over 200 years the Israelites are again in exile in a foreign country in Babylon. They have no way to get out. They can't rescue themselves. They feel like God has completely forgotten and abandoned them because it's been about 70 years now. There's generations that have gone by. They don't even know the meaning of freedom anymore. And God comes into these chapters and starts speaking life and hope and a plan for restoration and redemption. See, I think what's interesting is this is an actual historical event that has taken place, that God is speaking comfort to his people of saying, I'm going to remove you from this physical exile into redemption and freedom. I'm going to pay the price for you to be set free. But it also beautifully parallels a spiritual reality that we have in our lives today. Sin exiles us today from a relationship with God. Our own brokenness becomes our captor. And there's no way for us to free ourselves. And I think the difficult part about talking about sin is ch in church is first of all, people don't like to hear about sin. It's not a popular thing to talk about, but I think our understanding of sin is underdeveloped because when we hear about it when we're new Christians or even kids in kids' church, we think about sin as hitting my brother, which I often do still to this day, or stealing a piece of gum or lying to your teacher or, you know, fill in the blank. And they feel like these little things and it's hard for us to compute. Why did Jesus have to die on a cross because I stole a stick of gum? That doesn't make sense. But sin is so much bigger than that. It's not individual acts. Because if I was to steal a, pick, a stick of gum, I could probably repay that or find a way to get out of the punishment of that. I could go and pay 25 cents and say sorry to the gas station manager, and then that would be done and away with. But the problem of sin is so much deeper and invasive and sickly. 
It's like a cancer. When we are born into sin, we're born into this world that is full of sin. And the power is too much for us to break on our own. See, when we invite sin into our lives, it spreads like a cancer. And it won't be satiated until its host is killed. That's what we see in scripture, that Satan is out to steal, kill, and destroy. He's not going to stop until you are fully destroyed, until the power of sin is so consuming in your life, it kills your family, it takes away future blessing from generations ahead of you, it disrupts your finances, your friends, your relationships, it changes the lens in which you view life. Your whole operating system needs a reboot, and you can't do it on your own. Sin is not individual as in my own sin, but sin is also communal. Like we have nations that are wrought with sin. Our own nation. I can't make up for the sin of my race. I can't make up for the sin of what happened to the Native American people? I mean, you name it. You could look through all of history and time. There's national and communal sin that not one of us could ever pay or get out of. That's how deep this hole is dug. And when we read, when we read in the New Testament about how our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities in this earth, that's not just talking about like Satan and his demons. That's also talking about the power of sin that is active in the earth. That is the curse that is upon our world that we cannot free ourselves from. And so we see, it's like, man, that is really depressing on <laughs> right before Christmas. But I think, you know, you, that there's that cheesy phrase where it's like, stars shine the brightest when it's darkest at night or whatever, but we need to realize our need in order to understand the hope that Jesus brings, what this manger actually represents. Yeah. We can't cure sin. We can't beat it. We can't heal it. We can't pay enough to get out of this debt. We need a savior. Yeah. Just like Israel needed to be set free from an exile that they put themselves into, they can't get out. That's the same for me and that's the same for you, is we need someone to come pay our debt. We need someone to break us free from what we have gotten ourselves into. And there's hope. There's total hope for that. See, the three themes in Isaiah that we see is God predicts this exile that's going to happen because of sins. He gives them a chance to turn from their wicked ways before they're actually swept away. Then exile actually happens, which indeed proves God is God because he predicted it was going to happen. Idols didn't do that. I couldn't have predicted that. Only he could. And then after that, in their deepest, darkest moment, when they are exiled in a foreign land, God starts to speak comfort and truth, and he creates a way for their freedom, not only physically in that moment in history, but also he's speaking and predicting of a new covenant, a new agreement that would set us free for eternity. Pay the debt of our sins. And that is the thrill of hope that we get to celebrate in Christmas. So God, in chapters 40 
through 55 starts predicting and prophesying about something new that was going to happen. Something new, a new agreement, or in biblical terms, a new covenant that was going to take place. The current covenant that they were under was the Mosaic covenant. Have you heard of like the Ten Commandments being written on the tablets and then coming down and then the people were supposed to follow these rules and then they turned into a million rules and if you broke one of them, you would have to sacrifice. See, this covenant that God made with people was conditional. You obey these things and there will be a spiritual blessing. You disobey, you disobey these things and there will be cursing. And the curse is actually being spit out of the promised land into like the desert again, which is what we actually see here with the Israelites being exiled to Babylon. But God in his great loving kindness starts speaking comfort and peace in the middle of that. And so these next few minutes, what I want to do is I've compiled some scripture from those chapters I spoke about, 40 through 55, of God's new agreement, his new promise, his new plan for the Israelites, and then including for us. And it's so filled with hope, and your heart can't help but to rejoice in the goodness and the kindness that we find in God's words. So as I read this, if you want to just close your eyes and receive it afresh this morning, or if you want to read along with me on the screen, if you feel like you're going to fall asleep if you close your eyes, like that's fine too. But I just want to infuse hope to you this morning of the context of this manger is so good. You can't help but to rejoice. All right. Isaiah 43.1. Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Remember when I saved you from Egypt and parted the Red Sea? But forget all of that. It is nothing compared to what I am going to do, for I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? Yes, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake, and I will never think of them again. But the Lord will save the people of Israel with eternal salvation. Throughout everlasting ages, they will never again be humiliated and disgraced. For the Lord is God, and he created the heavens and the earth and put everything into place. He made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. I love this part. He says, I publicly proclaim promises. I do not whisper obscurities in some dark corner. I would not have told the people of Israel to seek me if I could not be found. Yeah. Isaiah 44, 22, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I've scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me for I have paid the price to set you free. Um, this mic just fell down. Could I just grab one of those? Or is this okay? <clears throat> it's dangling by my neck. <laughs> Can I just use this instead? Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so what is the price? What's the ransom that 
came to set us free. It's the person and his name is Jesus. We see him prophesied about in Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. And this is the prophecy of his life. All through Isaiah 53, this is verse 4. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, unjustly condemned. He was led away. And because of his experience, my righteous service will servant will make it possible for many to be counted as righteous. For he will bear all of their sins. Fear not. For you will no longer live in shame. Do not be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. I will say to the prisoners, come out in freedom. And to those in darkness, come into the light. Isaiah 54, 9. Just as I swore in the time of Noah that I would never again let a flood cover the earth, so now I swear that I never again will be angry and punish you. For the mountains may move and the hills may disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. My covenant of blessing will never be broken, says the Lord who has mercy. That's powerful. Speaking of an everlasting covenant that we don't have to earn, that we don't have to pay for, that we don't have to be righteous enough to receive, but an everlasting love that is full of grace and mercy, a new promise, a new covenant brought forth by a man born in a manger. And I hope my prayer for you this morning is that you're able to receive how much he actually loves you that he would do this. And I know it seems trite because that's what church talks about over and over again. But my prayer for you is that it would become afresh again this Christmas season. That the lengths that he went to, the depths he went to, to pull us out of our own muck and mire so that we could be in perfect union with him again. And the fact that our position then is secure, it can't be broken, we can't fall out of it accidentally, but that we are bold, we can approach his throne with boldness because we are called his children. Our identity was changed from slave, from captor, to son, to daughter. To most prized possession, not for our own sakes, not because we deserve it, but for the glory of his name. It's so good. It seems too good to be true, honestly. And what amazing message this is, that the same message that God spoke 2,600 years ago to a people in captivity, coming out of captivity again, wondering, man, God, have you forgotten about me? Are we done for? Have we messed up too many times that you're just wanting to start over? And yet he's saying the same thing to us as we're coming out of captivity, of exile. He's saying, sweetly, I love you. There is no depth that I haven't crossed in order to be with you. I love that song where we're singing, he loves us. It's not he loved us like it's a one-time 
thing, a gift card to some restaurant that we use and then we don't get it again. He loves us. It's an ongoing state of being that he allows us to be in. It's beautiful. If you guys want to turn to Isaiah 55, this is where I'm going to close this morning is in this chapter. We see all of these things of God speaking peace, comfort, restoration. I love you. The new promise I have is not conditional but unconditional. And he ends this chapter, this section of prophecy with an invitation, not only to the Israelite people but to all nations of the world, including you and me. Isaiah 55.1, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come and take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. The thing about salvation is we have to be thirsty for it. We have to sense a need for it. We have to understand the depth of the power of sin something we can't break on our own. Man, I'm thirsty, Jesus, for freedom. And Jesus actually references this in John 6, 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. Sure, physically, right? We're all going to be hungry and thirsty. In fact, I'm hungry right now. <laughs> But spiritually to know that it is well with my soul, that if all the mountains move, the hills disappear, things are falling on my right and my left, to know I have security in the one whom my soul delights, that is the hope. That's the hope that we can't make up. Of everything else is going crazy around me, but I know what's ahead and my confidence is in the one who has victory. It's so good. It's so good. Isaiah 55 two says, why spend your money on food that doesn't give you strength or pay for food that does you no good? Meaning like things in this earth that you try to satiate those desires and it's not working. I've done that in my own life. Tried to cope with things, run to other things in this world to try to boost up my own ego, make me feel good about myself. And after a while, it just didn't work or I craved more and more. It didn't satisfy the way the water and the bread of life does. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. See, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations and you will not know. And the nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. David was a hero to the Israelite people. He was like the main guy, like the dude. And they all knew that David was this special um, had this special relationship with God. It wasn't like other people in the Bible. It was individual. It was intimate. It was personal. It was specific. 
And what God is saying is, see how much I love David, had this amazing relationship with him, how I anointed him, how I blessed his kingdom. I'm going to democratize that and send it to you too. Now you have accessibility to this special relationship with me, this special love friendship that only I can provide. And you will be witnesses to the nations, just as David was a witness to you. And so as we receive this restoring love and power of a holy God, we're showing the nation, some that we don't even know how good God is. Again, not for our own sake, but for his, for his sake. It's amazing. This new covenant is that God's presence is not only free to us, but it's accessible to everyone. It's no longer just for the righteous ones, the ones who went to seminary, the ones who are nuns and monks and who have um, put away all the pleasures of this world. God's presence isn't just for those people. It's for everyone to enjoy to accept. We see that when the curtain is torn after Jesus' death, representing that his presence is now throughout the earth. It's not in a specific place, but is made home in our hearts. Isaiah 55 goes on to say, seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Does that mean that God is going to go away? That there's just this specific window of opportunity like you see in those dumb commercials where it's like only for the next 55 minutes you too can buy a cheese grater. Like it's not, it's not a window that is closing or expiring. What he's meaning when he says, I come to me while I am near, it's because he's saying, you are near. Like right now, our hearts are nearer to him than they might be all week. And so while we are near to God, let's come to him. Let us have ears to hear so we can say, yes, Jesus, I accept this invitation to thirst no more, to hunger no more, to have an everlasting covenant of blessing blessing and love that I don't deserve. I am near to you, Lord. Let the wicked change their ways and banish every thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God for he will forgive generously. And then this is my favorite part. It says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the stars are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Oh my gosh, I love that. And when I read it in context... It, it brought on such a new meaning for me because I've always thought of that verse out of context of like God's plans, his like why something happened that I don't understand. It's easy to just be like, well, his thoughts are above our thoughts, his ways are above our ways. And I'm not saying that's not true, but in the context of Isaiah 55, what he's referencing is how good his forgiveness is. That his forgiveness is far above our thoughts, that his redemption, his ways are far above our ways. It's so good. It says that he will blot out our sins and remember them no more. Men's thoughts concerning sin, Christ, and holiness, concerning this world and the other, vastly different from God's, which that's the plans, all his ways, they vastly differ from ours, which we can understand. 
but nothing more than in the matter of pardon. We forgive and cannot forget. But when for God forgives sin, he remembers it no more. Man, I can't even comprehend that. I don't understand. God could have chosen to absolutely remember every sin I've ever committed that I've never repented for that I have repented for and he could have used it against me he could blackmail me into servitude for the rest of my days say hey I've paid this bail money now you owe me I own you because of that but no he says I pay your bail I acquit your guilty sentence and I don't even remember what you did anymore that's how vastly his thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. And even if you can't forgive yourself, he has forgiven you. And my friend, his forgiveness is so much more powerful and all-encompassing and full of love than you could ever imagine. And I just want to stop right there for a second. And I want to speak to my friends in the room who maybe have received God's forgiveness, have accepted that. Maybe it was recently, maybe it was a long time ago. But what is keeping you in exile is the shame and the guilt of your own sin. Of maybe you keep beating yourself up over and over and over again of God, I know better and I still choose to do this. I should have known better and I did that and I can't forgive myself. And you allow shame to be like an attendant that follows you around and speaks lies over you. You're worthless. You don't deserve this. You're a horrible father. You're a horrible mother. Whatever those things are, don't allow shame to speak louder to you than the truth of Jesus Christ this morning, that his love is everlasting, that your sin is forgiven, and so shame should be left in exile as you come out in freedom from that. Shame has no place in your thoughts. If God spoke this message 2,600 years ago, it still rings true. It still, it was proven 600 years later from that prophecies, all of the prophecies to this manger. If his love is that big, if his forgiveness is that wide, could you perhaps forgive yourself this morning? You're not the exception to the rule, my friends. There's no depth, height, width of what you could do that would ever separate you from his love. But we allow our shame to veil us from, from receiving that love, from feeling it deep in our hearts and allowing ourselves to more identify with the love of Jesus than identify with our shame. So my question for you this morning, man, is are you thirsty? Are you hungry for that everlasting love? I am, I need it afresh.
it's simple. If you're ready, if you're thirsty, what you do is you repent. I know we don't talk about sin a lot in like the American church, but repentance is always the first step. And repent in Hebrew is actually return. It's returning to that perfect union, that perfect relationship with Christ. So if you repent, if you confess, like, God, man, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I've come to the end of myself, and it's not good. I'm afraid for my family because what I have done. I'm afraid for myself because what my parents did to me. All of those things. Let's break the power of sin this morning by repenting and saying, Jesus, I believe that your way is better than my way. And I want to choose to follow you instead of my own path for myself because it's not working. I continue to live in exile thinking that I can control it and I can't. So if you would just stand with me right now, we're going to pray. I just sense the Lord right now, like extending his hands towards you with this amazing gift of love for you to receive. If only you would exchange your sin and your shame for it. He doesn't want you to hold on to that anymore. He wants to replace it with grace and freedom, freedom to live and move in this world without condemnation. So if that's you, if you want to receive that today, um, simply confess in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he died on a cross for you, that this manger is just the beginning of the pinnacle of the most incredible story of all time. If you believe that in your heart, that's what it is to be saved. It's not a 12-step program. It's not a membership to a church. It's not all the good ways that you can serve God that's going to earn your spot in heaven. It's simply exchanging your sin and your shame for belief in Jesus. It's repenting. It's returning to God. And so we're going to sing this song. Um, and just give you some space to pray for that in your own heart, wherever that might be. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time and you feel a nudge to return to the Lord in a new way, just want to give you space to talk to God about that. That's what prayer is. Maybe that's the kids, pastor, and me oversimplifying it. But man, it really is a conversation. There's nothing crazy spiritual about it. You don't have to go to a class to understand it. And we want to pray with you because we understand that that's the pathway that the Holy Spirit meets us on is prayer. And so we're going to have some staff members, some elders, small group leaders in the back. We just encourage you, please come pray with us. If you pray this prayer in your heart, come tell us about it. We want to rejoice with you in this great exchange. Don't allow your sin and your shame to keep you from even just talking to somebody praying with them. So let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. This is what a prayer of repentance looks like if you want to do it on your own or with me.
and then find somebody to pray with. God, I confess that I'm not enough. I repent of my sin that keeps me in exile, in captivity. I need you. I need a good savior who will blot out my sins and remember them no more. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you are the plan that God spoke about in Isaiah. That you bore all of my sins so I could live in restored relationship with God. I want to live your way and not my own. I choose to return to you. Jesus' name.